often I sit in that cage back there and play the drums, and I don't get a chance to experience the words. Part of that is because I'm worried I'm going to screw up, right? You don't want to screw up. The drummer is very important. The bassist is very important in music. We kind of keep time with things. But to stand out there and worship and then read the words in a new way. And I read, having studied this week about freedom in Christ, I read, in his freedom I'm free. And I am inside a basket case in the best, most worshipful sense right now. In his freedom I am free. You can go ahead and take a seat. We're going to get right into the message. We will pray, do not worry. Our passage this morning is Romans 14, all of that, and then we're going to go into chapter 15 as well. And the the title of the sermon, if you like titles, is We're Not Here to Please Ourselves. So Romans 14, turn in your Bible. This will be a passage where you need to be in the Word. So if you're not looking at me, I won't be offended. You'll probably be better off for not looking at me as long as you're looking at the Word, whether that's on your phone, tablet, or paper um, pages, go ahead and do that. But this morning's sermon is what we call a one-off in in ministry. So it's something that I'm doing, uh, and it's happening just this one time. It's not part of a series that we're doing. We finished Proverbs last week, and we've been challenged to think differently about God's wisdom in that and how we receive that wisdom. And this weekend, we know, Atada alluded to it, we know a lot of people are probably camping or at cottages, I would hope not like enjoying a brunch right now or something like that, but that's how it goes. So we're starting 1 Peter next week, um, and Jasper will will be doing that. But what do we preach right now then when you have a one-off? For all the people who don't like camping or don't have enough money for a cottage, what does God say to you this morning? How about this? How about this? So think with me. If you were tasked this morning with preaching a message to some at church, what passage would you choose? What process would you go through to choose it? And really that comes down to what message do you think in your convictions that God has given you that the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear? Now, at Summit, we've got uh, kind of a, a real value for what we call expository preaching, exposition. Anyone ever hear that term before? Very churchy, modern church kind of word. Yep, I see some people pumping their fists, hopefully not shaking their fists, but pumping their fists. Um, and really, there's kind of this contrast. There's, there's expository preaching, and then there's topical preaching. With topical preaching, you basically think of a topic or notice something, and then you find out what the Bible says about that and preach what you found out. And the challenge with topical preaching, as maybe some of you have experienced or noticed, is that it's really tempting to to sometimes add things to it, but really more often to not say things, to take things out, to avoid things instead of preaching what the Bible says, and especially for the wrong reasons. So there's this good sort of forcing function to prevent that from happening, and it's really kind of based on, hey, we're going to preach through whole books. So you notice the series coming up, we're doing First Peter. We'll go from one through the end of First Peter. And ultimately, this isn't expository preaching. To preach a book just isn't expository preaching. You can preach through a book and still not be expositing it, still not honoring the Word of God in that. And when you're picking a book, you're still picking and choosing, Right? So, example, when was the last sermon you heard about uh, Song of Solomon? 
We're going to do that series. Some of you are excited now hearing that. We're actually not going to do that yet. Or Ezekiel 23. Look up that passage as you blush. You will recognize, I don't know about that. So there's this, hey, how do we pick and choose the right thing? But ultimately, the task that I have this morning is to preach and teach what the Word of God says, not what the preacher or myself would want to say, or not even what you as a listener, a parishioner, would want to hear or be taught. Couple quotes about expository preaching. You look like you're kind of flowing in this. That's good. No one's fallen asleep quite yet. Appreciate it. David Helm, who's a preacher, I, th- I think he's still in Chicagoland, says this, expositional preaching is empowered preaching that rightfully submits the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of a biblical text. Does that make sense? Alistair Begg, some of you know that name. He has a great Scottish accent. You could listen to him preach all day just based on the accent. Sorry that I have Midwest Chicago accent. Not as exciting as Alistair Begg. But he writes this. Unfold, expositional preaching is exfold, unfolding, sorry, unfolding the text of Scripture in such a way that makes contact with the listener's world while exalting Christ and confronting them with the need for action. So next week when Jasper preaches from 1 Peter, he's not picking the topic. The topic has been decided for him in that. The elders decided on that series and his topic and the content of his sermon is ultimately already decided by God and he's doing verses one and two. He doesn't decide what that means. It means what it means and he wants you to understand that. The shape of his sermon will be determined by the the shape of the text. What he will emphasize will be based on what those verses, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter 1 emphasize. So this morning, I'm obligated to preach what some verses say and emphasize what verses emphasize. But I wasn't constrained or helped, you might say, by having a series to do that in. So why did I choose these verses to preach? Right? It's a good question that you should ask as part of a church. Why would I choose these things? Because I'm not some prophet. I don't have, as if you look back on the prophets of old, I have not received some vision from God in regards to, to know what's going to happen in the future. But as I look at the broader church, you might say throughout the world, but especially in the United States of America, because that's where I'm from, that's where we are right now, and then as I look at our church itself, it's almost like we're standing at this point, and if we look out ahead, there's like this tiny fissure that might be forming, right? A tiny crack that might be forming. And as you look out, there's this risk that if that fissure is not dealt with, if we don't apply the word of God to what's going on with that crack, that looking out ahead, we'll see like Grand Canyon proportion division and separation in the church. It's nothing to be afraid of, but we should take the warning in that. It makes me really nervous. Now, God has given us a mission, hasn't he? Does anyone know our mission? Some of you would know it. You start with glorify God, right, by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, some of you are smiling when I say this mission. So I'm going to take that as a positive, like, hey, you've said the mission enough. That means you know it. And if I talk to you about it after the service, you could quote it too. But ultimately, we want to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. But there's this challenge in that. And you'll see it up on the screen posed as a question. Is it possible to carry out this mission, to glorify God, to make disciples, disciples who are marked by their exaltation of Jesus Christ? Can you do that when there's all these different convictions 
about how to do that. Is it possible to do that? Now think about that question up on the screen. Is it possible, given that we have all these different convictions about the best ways and different ways to exalt Jesus and to glorify God, can we really do that together? Is it possible to do that together? The answer is yes. And that's what the verses are about this morning from Romans 14 through Romans 15. Now, I would ask you to join me in prayer um, as we prepare to hear from the, the passage. Dearest Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done. Help us to know these things. I pray that by your spirit, we would be in a spot where whether our, our faith is strong according to what your word says or our faith is weaker according to what your word says, that our hearts would be ready to hear what you would have to say that we would receive the encouragement and not push it away or strong arm it or stiff arm it away, as well as the correction that you have for us, the rebukes. And altogether, there would be a, a training in righteousness so that we are completely equipped and ready to do every good work that you've prepared beforehand that we would walk in. So God, we ask that you would be glorified in this. If I'm about to say something dumb, God, take that away. And if you would have me say something that I haven't planned, please give that to me that you would be glorified and your people would be taught and encouraged. We always ask this in the name of Jesus, knowing that it's not his, um, just a way to refer to him, but it is everything about him and his authority and his kingdom. Amen. All right, so we're right in at the start of chapter 14, verse 1. You can look in your Bible what it says. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, when we see welcome there in the ESV, maybe your Bible says something else. Maybe it says receive or accept. But as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome there is not a handshake. So we have a welcome team, a greeting team. They shake your hand or say hi or do the fist bump or whatever is appropriate these days in regards to greetings. This is deeper than that kind of welcome. That's a very surface, high-level type of welcome. But this is about acceptance. This is about accept the weak in faith, as an equal part of the family of God. Accept those who are weak in faith as equal partners in the gospel. That's what acceptance is. But there's more questions that are raised as we look at this passage as well in verse 1. First of all, what is faith? We could talk about that. That's like a month of sermons right there. But it's belief, confidence, and trust in God. What are opinions? Another way to think of opinions would be personal convictions. We think opinions as like, what's the best flavor of ice cream? Who's the greatest basketball player of all the time? Not LeBron, it's Jordan, right? Like there's all these things that are opinions. But ultimately, an opinion in this sense is a judgment in your heart about how to live, founded on sincere belief and driven by conscience, what God has put inside us to think about right and wrong. And then, who are the weak in faith? We say that, we're like, weak in faith. What, what does that mean, to be weak in faith? And that's all in verses 2 to 12. So as we read through this together in verses 2 to 12 of chapter 14, think about the questions that you see on the screen. What do they believe? How do they view and interact with other people? What does God tell them to do? What does God tell them not to do? One person believes he may eat anything. 
Well, the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. For God has accepted him. Do you see that at the end of verse 3? Verse 4, look at it. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who do you think you are to pass judgment on someone else's servant? That is, these are servants of Jesus Christ. You don't get to make decisions about their convictions. Middle of verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Are you following along in the word? Good, good, good. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, look at it. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give, gives thanks to the Lord. Do you see this? There are these things that are opposites. And both people, in this case, are doing them for the right reasons, in honor of the Lord. Then look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. So Paul, who's the writer here, he's taking it from small things all of a sudden to like the absolute end of things, right? We're talking about food and days, things that are very minor. And all of a sudden he's like, yeah, this is really also about life and death. And ultimately, what is the truth? One lives to himself, or uh, none of us live to ourselves, and none of us die to ourselves. Look at verse 8. All of a sudden it gets very big. For if we live... Who are you living to? We live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live, right, very big thing, or whether we die, big thing as well, we are the Lord's. Look at verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that is, he was resurrected, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, look at verse 12 there. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. I want to look at some things. There's similarities and differences in verses 2 through 12. So similarities between the weak, which is referenced, but then also inferred is they're strong people too. And there's differences between those. And sometimes when we think about differences, we get so focused on those that we forget how many things we have that are the same about us. So let's look at the similarities first. There's similarities in this passage, and we're just going to review them, not like deep dive every one. But in identity, and motivation of both, so each one, both the weak in faith and the strong in faith. Look at it. Verse 3, both are accepted by God. That's what the Bible says. So strong in faith, weak in faith, accepted by God. They're both servants of God 
in verse 4. So they're, they're both serving God. They're lifted up or they will stand. They're upheld by God's power. That's in verse 4 as well, towards the end of it. Verses 7 to 9 talks about both the strong in faith and both the weak in faith belong to the Lord. And then as servants of God, in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, they will give an account to God for themselves, what they do and what's going on in their lives. Let's jump back to verse 6. And it's something that's very important. And that's both the strong in faith and both the weak in faith are glorifying God by living out their convictions, by following their conscience, and doing that with thanksgiving. So it's not like, well, the strong are doing all these awesome things, and the weak are a bunch of bums, and they don't glorify God. No, there's this equal glorification of God by the weak and the strong. And then there's this encouragement to them and also an exhortation in verse 5. Look at the end of it. Read it to yourself. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. There's a same encouragement and same exhortation to both the weak in faith and the strong in faith. And they're instructed to be completely convinced about their convictions with a crystal clear conscience. You don't have to be discouraged about your conscience. You don't have to worry about, whoa, what if someone decides something else for me? The word of God is saying, hey, be fully convinced in your own mind. If God has put something on your heart to live a certain way, live that way. It's important to note at this point, these are non-essential things in the passage, right? He's talking about food and drink and days. We obviously know that there's things that are uh, non-negotiables of our faith, right? The person and work of Jesus Christ, who God is, what God has done. This isn't about those core primary doctrines. This is non-essential things. Be fully convinced in your own mind. That is, if God has given you a conviction, look in the word of God and then run with it. Do it. It's good. But there's also some differences between the strong and weak in faith, right? That's why the weak are mentioned. First of all, there's different thinking between the two, the strong in faith and the weak in faith. The strong believes he may eat anything. That's in verse 2, right? And the strong one in faith judges all days alike. And then how does the the weak in faith think and what are their beliefs? Well, he doubts, and I put that word on the screen. He doesn't have a confidence that he's allowed to eat and drink anything. That's in verse 2. And the drinking part comes in verse 21 later on. And the weak also judges one day as better than other days. So there's different thinking and beliefs between the, the strong in faith and the weak in faith. Now, there's also different warnings and exhortations too. In the same way that there was like the central same warning a kind of encouragement and exhortation, there's some different ones. So to the strong, hey, don't ever look down on other believers who have more restrictive convictions that you are, than, than you do, right? Don't be arrogant. So for example, if you feel 
fully clear in your conscience to consume alcohol, don't think like, well, I'm better than someone else because I do that. That's probably just because you like beer. It doesn't have anything to do with your conscience. So there's this risk with the strong of, of basically despising. That's a very strong word in Scripture, looking down on, like, I'm better than you. Your faith is crummy. Look at my faith. God is saying, if you're strong in faith, don't ever do that. If you see someone that has more restrictive convictions in how they live their life, don't despise them. But then the weak, you should never look at another believer's freedom in Christ and call it sin. It's wrong for you to do that. Condemning here would be like to to look at someone according to non-essential things and say like, you know what? I've determined that you're not a Christian because you do those things. So the strong shouldn't look down on and the weak shouldn't make all these judgments about the freedom that Christ has won for other people to serve and glorify him. And there's a question that came up as I was studying this and I hope it resonates with you. I hope even now that God would work in your heart so that you would see the weight of this question and it's this. If the weak still glorify God, right? So the scripture says that. They're still glorifying God. They're, the weak in faith still are honoring and are thankful to God. Why are they called weak? Right? It seems like they're all right. They're glorifying God. They're giving thanks to God. How can they be called weak? Let's look at it. I think it's really because they have the right motives. So their hearts are in the right place. But there's something that they don't understand. They lack a knowledge I'd recommend reading 1 Corinthians 8 sometime this week. Very pertinent, not exactly the same, but very similar. And it says this. First of all, I think it's verse 6 or 7 in 1 Corinthians 8. It says, in regards to those who are weak in conscience, it says, they lack knowledge. I should have put that up on the screen. But ultimately, look at verse 8 there. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat. And we're no better off if we do. It's not about food. It's not about that non-essential thing. And then two verses within the passage that we're looking at today. Look at that. One person believes he may eat anything. Well, the weak person only eats vegetables. So there's the difference between the, the strong and weak. One person esteems one day as better than another. Well, another esteems all days alike. That's verse 5. So believers who have weaker faith, they look at all these things that God has given to mankind to glorify him. They look at food, drinks, days of the week, everything, all of it. And they end up kind of ranking them and thinking, well, there's, there's better ways to glorify God than others. Like, yeah, okay, they're okay, but this way is better. And really, the way that I, I want to do it is better than anyone else's way. This one's best. This is second best. This one hardly makes the cut. This one's okay. This one's kind of like uber spiritual. This one is hyper glorifying of God. That's not legalism. They're not trying to earn their relationship with God or God's favor through their actions. So their motives are right. They want to please God, but their knowledge of who God is and what God has done is just incomplete. You might say that their faith is weak 
and it's immature. Therefore, we're going to go back to the text now after summarizing. Therefore, verses 13 to 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer, look at that, walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating, drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. There is a great encouragement in these verses, 13 through 19, because it's saying God has given you a conviction when you live by that uh, whoever thus serves Christ, right, with that attitude, wanting to glorify him, is acceptable to God and approved by men. But then there is this instruction as well. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. There's an instruction in these verses that we can take out of it, and it is prioritize these things, humility, love, and spiritual growth ahead of personal convictions. The passage is saying there are things that are more important than those personal convictions. God gives us relationships to build up other people. Yes, we receive satisfaction out of those and we are built up by others having that attitude towards us. But the relationships that God gives us are to build up other people, not to try to change their convictions. That's not what we're supposed to spend time on. God is the one who deals with consciences and convictions. So focus on those things. Focus on humility. That is, are you depending on God and are you putting others before yourself? Are you walking in love? And do you want spiritual growth? Do you want people's faith to be strengthened? Verse 20, take a look. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned. If he eats, because the eating is not from faith. And then look at the end of verse 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul goes there from just talking about food to something bigger. Whatever 
does not proceed from faith is sin. That is, you can do something that seems to be right but is wrong because you're not doing it based on your total dependence on God and desire to please him. From that, we can take some things away, take some things with us. I think the the big thing from those verses is never impose personal convictions on other people. Keep the convictions of your faith between you and God. That does not mean, well, don't live out your faith publicly. No, not at all. We've just learned from chapter 14 what that really means. Don't try to put your own convictions onto someone else. Your conscience is between you and God. And then in verse 23, we see this very dangerous thing, and that's forcing your own convictions on others tempts them to live by something other than faith, and that's sin. You're tempting someone to sin when you try to foist or force or impose your own personal convictions on other people. And it can destroy their faith. It can wreck their lives by you trying to do that. Challenge we have in our day and age when reading this is generally speaking, like food, drink, days of the week, we're pretty much okay with those. I get it. People have different perspectives on those things. I don't, I don't know in my time involved in different churches if I've ever seen those things divide. So what are some current considerations, right? It is, we're right now in Summit Church, West Olive, Ottawa County, Michigan. As I drive around, I see many types of signs, right, in people's yards about what they believe about things and what they think is the most important. We're in the state of Michigan. We're in the USA, and it is AD 2023 by the Gregorian calendar. So food and drink, uh, kind of important. Maybe in the past that was a bigger deal in the church. Days of the week, some people still get worked up about those things. But what are some current considerations? So there's this exhortation, and I'd like you to look at it on the screen. Hey, be confident. That's what the passage is saying. If you have a conviction, be confident in that. Don't be like, oh, and just wander around never knowing what God has called you to do in life. That's not what he wants from this passage. But then also, you must be considerate regarding some things, and really, in certain cultures, be more sensitive to some things than others. And there's a a list that we can see. Be confident in your convictions, but also considerate of others regarding what you eat and drink, days that you honor, and the things that you do on those days. Is this starting to sink in now that it's a little more like, oh, I see what he's getting at. Clothes that you wear, ways that you worship, and the music, the instruments, or movements that are involved in that worship? What about your approaches and convictions and even personal callings to evangelism, Bible study, and missions? What if Ika and Amanda had come on the stage and said, this, what God has put on our hearts to do, it's the only way to do it. What they're saying is anything else besides what we've been called to do by God, you're wrong and you shouldn't do it. We should only do it this way. Think of what the church would look like if that was our perspectives that we tried to foist or impose on other people the convictions, good, right, helpful convictions that God puts in our lives. So be confident, but also consider it to others regarding those things. And it gets deeper as well. 
Be confident, but consider regarding some other things. War, justifiable use of military force, self-defense. These are very serious, tricky things to consider, are they not? Home, private, public schooling. Differing approaches to medicine, health care. How do you respond when the government clearly overreaches into the lives of its citizens? How do you respond rightly to gay people? How do you respond rightly to other believers who are also trying to respond rightly to gay people? And as I look at that fissure or tiny crack in the church and see this potential of Grand Canyon things looming out ahead, I really wonder if there's this branchism where there's quiet life and activist life. That's the one that's been making me the most nervous for the past four years. I know that my nervousness is not the basis of the direction of our church. Isn't that awesome, right? That we have multiple leaders who are leading. So when there's a guy that's like, I don't know about this, there's others that have strong confidence in who God is and what God has done and even about where people's hearts are at. And yet I am part of the mix at Summit Church in terms of determining the direction. And I'm very nervous and uneasy about these two buckets of conviction, the quiet and the activist. So here's just some examples. The quiet person looks at the teaching of scriptures and feels called to live a life of peace that minds its own business and emphasizes individual relationships. The quiet does also see suffering as pivotal. And then there's an activist. They look at the teaching of scriptures and they feel called, right? Have a strong conviction and their conscience is clear and that we're to live a life that goes out aggressively and actively seeks to change the world and what's going on around us. These convictions emphasize impacting community, cultures, for the sake of Christ. Here's the important thing. Both of those branches, if you want to call them that, are buckets. They're able to make reasoned, studied, scriptural cases for their convictions. Neither, if, if you want to think of it as sides, but neither bucket is crazy and just making stuff up. But then there's this challenge that happens when either type of person with those convictions start to place them ahead of the weightier commands of Scripture, like we saw earlier in chapter 14, bad things start to happen. So when our motives get out of whack, we take idols into our hearts, just like God told the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14. 14 we take idols into our hearts, when our lives aren't lived in faith and confidence but out of fear of man or fear of loss of something that we treasure, then we're not living according to Romans 14. So the activist conviction person or the activist conviction church, they look at the quiet, often quiet conviction person or the quiet conviction church and basically says, although they may not say this out loud, you are a coward. You're not making a difference for the kingdom of God. You're letting the devil run all over us. We're going to lose everything that God has given us. 
And it's going to be your fault. You need to be like me, right? That's the risk of that activist conviction heart. And yet, the quiet conviction guy or church turns around and fires back. Your faith isn't even real. You just care about politics. You don't trust God. You are less spiritual, right? That's where they would be wrong in their thinking. That's not right. And maybe it's not a great divide. Maybe it's like a a fuse that's been lit and it's slowly sparking towards like this giant powder keg. When we think about the compatibility between these two groups of people, right, with clear convictions that they're strong in and they desire to honor the Lord in, there's this risk of having ourselves think in this way. Really, basically, there's no way looking at those two groups of people with such strong convictions, there's no way those people can glorify God together in the same body. It's just not going to happen. That's just going to produce chaos. It's going to produce disorder. There's no way they can function together. And really, the best thing for them to do is to go separate ways. Or, worse yet, to just spend all our time and energy trying to turn the other's convictions towards our own. The beauty of the passage is that God gives us a different solution. Chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. The first thing I I want you to notice in reading this as you look over verses 1 and 2, is that the church needs people with strong faith. Yes, we are all weak and we need the strength of God. But we who are strong have an obligation. We owe it to people to bear with their weaknesses and not to please ourselves. So you're to use all the strength that God has given you. Whatever amount of strength that is, you're to use all that strength that God has given you to please and build up others and not yourself. If you've been in church a while, that's a pretty churchy statement. And in my notes, I've got the astonished emoji, you know, the one that goes like that in my notes. Because I think in saying this, like we're used to it, the style of preaching of our church and the culture of our church, you're used to a preacher saying to you, hey, this isn't about you. Use the strength that God has given you to please and build up others, not yourself. This is, it's so contrary though to the way of the world and the way that that the world is thinking about things and the desires of our flesh that we need to be reminded. This statement is the exact opposite of how the world works. This will only work if God does something. God didn't put us here to please ourselves. And in our flesh, we hate that. And we want to make excuses about it. And we want to intellectualize it to explain why we don't have to do that. But then God says in verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Verses 3 and 4 say, this is the way of Christ. Willing, selfless, sacrificial service to weak people who are undeserving of that service. That's the way of Christ. That's what Jesus did for you. 
He's strong, and I'm weak. I'm the one that's all over the place. The elders can account for that. They're like, that guy's a spaz. Like, he's got passion for God. He's a spaz. He's like Peter. Like, up, remember when they were up and the, the Lord was glorified, and Peter was like, whoa, let's put up some tents. Like, that's me. I'm a spaz like that. But then I look down there, and I see Dennis, and I see people like Todd. Uh, there he is. And it, it's like they're very stable and strong in their convictions. And somehow, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we work together incredibly well. Again, not because we're awesome, but because God is awesome. And it's the same way in the whole body. This is the way of Christ. And then look at verse 4. Now, sometimes you'll hear a guy preach and they'll be like, this is a nugget. Like, there's a nugget in, in Scripture, right? It's like a little truth. This is God, through the Apostle Paul, putting an entire planet in the middle of a passage. It is not a nugget. It is a planet that will crush you in the best sense of the word. So yes, Christ did not please himself. But the way that Paul references this is to go back to Psalm 69, and I think it's verse 9. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's what Christ did for us. The insults that people had for us, Christ is like, I will take those. The beatings that are due for us, Christ is like, I will take those. The bad things that are due for us because we're weak, Christ took those on himself. And it was the psalmist prophetically saying, Christ is going to do this. And then Paul's like, I have to explain this. And the, the, really the verse 4 explains itself. Whatever was written in former days, that is, now when we read things that happened before Paul was writing this, ultimately we would say the Old Testament those were written for our instruction. They're to teach us how to do something. And what is it? That through endurance, like stick with it, don't give up, don't ever give up, keep going. And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There's a tendency to look at the way of Christ and be like, it's not going to work. God, it's not going to work. I've got to change my conviction so I can fight in a different way to do more for you. And God is saying, I put these things in your heart, believe in the way of Christ, and that is selfless, willing, sacrificial service to people who don't deserve it. Don't try to change those other people, just serve them and give them my message. That's what God is telling to every one of us. And we go back to the scriptures and we read that's always been his way. That wasn't introduced with Christ. It's always been the way of God. It's always been his plan to say, I'm doing great things for undeserving people. And it, yes, it involves suffering. Yes, it involves sacrifice. Yes, you must have a willing heart in that. But it will end up producing the results that I say because I am God. We should do a sermon series on verse 4 after the 28,000 other ones we have planned on our whiteboard. Um, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement, right? So we find endurance and encouragement in the scriptures. He's the God of endurance and encouragement. Grant you to live in such harmony, uh, one-mindedness, to have the same mind with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is praying for the church in Rome and all believers. Ask God to grant 
that is God must grant this. You don't have it in yourself. You don't drum it up. You don't grit your teeth and make it happen. God grants it to you that you might have the mindset of Jesus Christ, that you would live in accordance and have the mind of Christ Jesus, his attitudes and perspectives. And the result of that is that all together, in harmony with one voice, we're going to glorify God in doing that, in everything that we think and say and do. And we'll be different because God has intended that, and we'll live differently in some regards, but unified in the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's worth it. So whatever we lack in that, like if there's this, I can't do that, God gets that. If we ask him, he'll give that to us. So if you're like, I can't abide by Romans 14. Can't do it, God. Not gonna do it. Like, if, if you're like that, God can give that to you as long as you are willing. Ask him to change your heart, to receive his word and to live in accordance with the scriptures. God will grant everyone the mindset of Christ if they're willing to receive it. And then verse seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Stop and think here. There's an assumption in the verse that the people have thought about how Christ has welcomed them, right? As Christ has welcomed you. So think about that right now. Like right now, just kind of process it in your brain. How has Christ accepted me? How has Christ accepted you? Did he accept you because you had everything figured out? We know the answer to that is no. He accepted us because we're chosen and he loves us. And the Father sent Christ to receive us and to help us and to teach us and instruct us. So stop and just think, how has Christ accepted me? Was it on the basis of anything that I've done or is it on the basis of his love for me and his grace and kindness and mercy? And then you are called in the same way that Christ has accepted you to accept others, to receive others in the same way, even if they have weak faith, even if they are, if you'll excuse the frankness, even if they're like super-duper annoying. You're supposed to accept them in that same way because I and Heather and Hunter and Brock can attest to this and other people, I am super-annoying and Christ has accepted me. He loves me and he wants me to be part of his family and he wants me to be part of the ministry that he's called all his children to. So accept others in the same way, and that is for their benefit and God's glory. So that is our prayer this morning. I hope you'll join me in being willing to receive that and then to pray it now. Dearest Heavenly Fathers, we, Father, we want to accept others in the way that Christ has accepted us. And I pray that now by your Spirit, as we're getting ready to sing, that we would understand that in a, in a fresh way, this truth that has always been there, that you've accepted us and you love us, but you don't want us to stand still. Help us to be strong in our convictions, not wavering back and forth or tossed all over the place, but confident in what you've done and what you've called us to do, but then also to be considerate of others in that and ultimately to work as a team, as a body for your glory that we would accomplish more for you as this one body, one voice glorifying you together than any one of us could do alone in our pride and unwillingness to listen. Change our hearts, Father, that we might do that. And I pray now that it would be especially noticeable to us as we sing, that we are singing with one voice, harmonizing in some senses, that you would be glorified. Amen.